I'll just I'll I'll get my audio editing engineer to do that for me. Yeah. Oh wait, yeah. I don't have one. Do you not have a person <laughs> who does that? No. See, we don't have sponsors. So. I got a guy. You got a you got oh, a guy. A guy. That's, that's good. <laughs> so this my is friend a... just my friend just used my my hardwood flooring guy. So I'm feeling very very adult right now. So I can I'm Ooh. sure I can find a guy who can do that. I really thought we were going to go with a Nigerian prince scheme, but that's no. much better. Part of adulthood is having a guy for things. So. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah, Crazy. I always wondered what the defining adult standard would be, and it's thank literally you, it's literally that. Yeah. Hey now, hey now! It's having a person for these things. I mean, oh, oh, it's 2017. Yeah, yeah. you got to sure. watch your microaggressions oh. here. I think I. Um, Jeez. <laughs> well, I guess I got to retire from. Po- I mean, it was good podcast for you guys, but now that um, I've been I've been proven to be uh, uh, not truly woke, I can't really stick around. Yep so. you you are not politically correct enough, so you need to yeah. leave. Yeah. Well, this podcast right. is for globalist cucks only, so. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I hate that word so much. Okay. Yeah, we're all gonna die. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello. And Kirk Gunner. Hi there. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. And don't forget to also view our latest post about Turkey's monumental decision to vote away its own democratic rights. So our fifth episode begins just after the much-hyped 100th day of the Trump administration. The 100-day mark seems to be a sort of Schrodinger's deadline. It's both really important and a completely arbitrary date at the same time. Though America's foreign policy, particularly in regards to the Middle East, was off to an uneasy start, it's looking more and more like foreign like foreign policies will resemble something like a typical, though less tactful, conservative administration. Some media outlets and human rights groups have been strongly criticizing the Donald for the strong support he seems to be providing for more authoritarian and even dictatorial regimes throughout the world. These include Russia, of course, Egypt, and even the Philippines. Just today, it was announced that Trump has invited Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte to the White House. Duterte has lately been a very harsh critic of the United States and has waged a ruthless, quote, war on crime, quote, as he calls it. And as a side note, I'm pretty sure he literally pushed someone out of a helicopter and everyone was cool with it. Uh, allegedly. Uh, sorry, so. allegedly pushed someone <laughs> okay, out of a on, helicopter. The terms on allegedly, this is one of them I would believe. <laughs> Definitely. So is this just realism at play, or should a nation that upholds the values of human rights be so cozy with those who seem to undermine it? I mean, it all kind of, it all builds off of what you believe U.S. foreign policy should be. Are we out for ourselves, or are we out for the liberal order? I mean, anyone who's read foreign affairs for the past, what, three, four episodes, episodes, I shouldn't say that, editions, has known that every everyone in the foreign policy realm is terrified that the liberal order is coming crashing down with the weight of populism, whether it be the UK, France with Marie Le Pen, Germany, you have just every, obviously Donald Trump, I don't even have to say his name, but why would you defend a liberal order in that case, or an order that is underpinned by democracies, which if you're not going to be benefiting from that in your perspective i'm not saying that's right or wrong but i'm I'm, i don't understand what the reason for them to actually defend all the liberal order and it makes sense that they're cozying up the dictators why would they want democracies they're not going to get anything from it it's um and we can talk more about defining terms later i I do kind of want to talk about the term populism and and um what it means now but i do think it's very interesting to think about this kind of um you know, obviously, I, I don't believe that there is a strategy behind Trump's uh, actions. I don't believe that he has enough knowledge of these different groups to turn around and say for sure that 
he wants Duterte or he wants Erdogan on his side for any particular policy reason. Um, but it says quite a bit that he's drawn to those people and that he's completely willing to upturn or overturn um, how many uh, decades of, of U.S. foreign policy uh, that drifted towards liberalism, drifted towards democracy. And I mean, there is a little bit of some irony that you can see in, in uh, Democrats being really upset about, you know, uh, Americans not trusting the CIA or not trusting certain parts of the intelligence establishment that a few months ago or a few years ago were not looking so good based on, you know, uh, all of South America <laughs> and other different uh, regime change uh, decisions. But I don't know. I, I guess the question we should be asking ourselves is, what is America's role going to be going forward? And should we attempt to, uh, you know, be a liberal light in the future? Or should we just kind of say, you know what, figure it out, guys, do it, do whatever you want to do on your own. Uh, and we'll do our thing. I think that kind of spirals into the conversation of, can you have a foreign policy that deviates from the standard citizens foreign policy goals? So if us three here want to have a liberal foreign policy, which is promoting democracy, promoting liberal human rights, etc., etc., in the world, but we're the only three people in the entire United States who want that, even though our view might be right who knows it might be wrong time will prove that but is that right for the united states as a democracy well if you go by that standard we wouldn't have the civil rights movement we wouldn't have gay marriage i mean it's a, it's it's tricky i, I mean I, I understand what you're saying and i think you're right we should at some point uh, ask what the people actually want but the whole point of many parts of government is to say look the ruling party of one of the two um, gets to set these policy standards. They get to decide, you know what, I really do think it's important that we do X or Y or Z, and we're just going to, that's what we're going to do, guys. I'm sorry. And the average student uh, or college student or average, um, you know, random worker all over the country might not care a ton about our trade policy with, pick a country, Venezuela. But, you know, the, the government understands why how that fits into a larger puzzle of, of foreign policy. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to get a little tricky when it comes to the democracy thing, too, because a lot of times we the government has had to go against the flow of democracy to secure the needs and, and rights of minority groups uh, in the U.S. But I mean, it, and I completely agree with you in terms of civil, uh, I guess, law and that, but foreign policy is a little different. I mean, you're not really looking out for the rights of minorities by promoting a civil or a... Uh, by promoting a realist foreign policy or a non-liberal foreign policy abroad. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm, right. as we can definitely tell from the democratic base, there are a lot of minorities who don't want us to be involved overseas. They want us to withdraw from all these sorts of what they see as interfering with other countries' democratic processes, whether they're democratic or not. Yeah. And it's a problem where... I think it's a broad consensus of the United States is obviously wary of foreign entanglements, if you might say that. And how do you kind of deal with that without destroying the liberal order? There's there's definitely a lot of truth to that. I think um, what's tricky, too, is that I'm someone who's been pushing for less interventionism abroad for a long time. So <laughs> there's a lot of irony here. I think um, the, the fear is that you expect the person to be that's pulling back from these different foreign adventures and, and uh, both military and, and, and uh, economic interventions around the world to be doing it with the kind of care and knowledge that doesn't seem to be happening with the Trump White House. Um, it just seems to be very casual and often literally based on who knows, who do I know? Who, who, does, who knows this person? Uh, do I know a business person in this country? Let me call that guy and ask him what to do. Um, or who seems impressive to me right now. And so instead of it being like, we need to pull back thoughtfully and to rethink what American policy is, it's just this kind of random haphazard thing. Oh, come on, I, Kurt. You don't like the <laughs> big man theory of international relations? I mean, I don't even know. Like, what's funny is that like you can, you can, you can make a lot of arguments for, for positive things that Erdogan has done. And the need to uh, pull the Turkish military away from Turkish politics, 
Uh, and you can also very easily argue, and I and I have in the past to friends and family, that Erdogan's actions put him far beyond the the dictator role that that any president has, and moved him into this kind of weird uh, king with with no check on his power role. Um, but you just I just don't think there's anyone in the Trump White House who's putting that much thought into it. It just doesn't seem like there's any of their press releases, any of their discussions about it. They just seem to be completely random. And I'm not going to put either of you in the, in the position to defend the Trump White House. Um, it's just funny because I, I've wanted less intervention for so long. And now I'm turning around and saying, well, we should intervene a little bit, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just not like this, right? It's definitely a dilemma. So you're saying that you don't believe that Trump is playing four-dimensional intergalactic chess with his opponents. <laughs> no, it's always something, right? Like this is this is Bannon's grand ploy to secretly do this. This it's like, and this is what I've told my my students in my world history courses. It is nine times out of ten incompetence over malice. Like it's much more common that people are just screwing up than they are four-dimensionally chessing, doing nineteen different moves at once that will then eventually lead to something else because. Odds are good they're not that smart, and that's just how history tends to work. I don't know, uh, but who knows? Maybe maybe Steve Bannon's more powerful genes have allowed him uh, some skills that I can't comprehend. <laughs> not sure if we need to go down the genetics road of that, but um, I think it's, it's important time to get here. kicked out of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's important here though that we separate, I guess, the the liberal international order with the liberal international economic order. The sense sure. that you know, yeah, everyone likes that. Sure, democracies tend to get along with each other and they tend to not attack each other. But wouldn't we say that the more important factor is just strong ties regarding trade and culture and economics in general, that countries that have very strong trade relationships tend not to go to war with each other? Or they'll go up to that point, but they won't necessarily spill over that. Wouldn't it be a better use of America's um, international political capital to try to uphold that more than just saying, well, you know, you don't, you don't have human rights, so we're not going to play nice with you. Well, if we have strong economic ties, shouldn't we pursue that anyway? Then why do we care about what's happening in Syria? Why do we care about what happened in Darfur, in Rwanda, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, yeah, to some extent, those economic ties are, don't get me wrong, they're incredibly important. They stabilize the world in ways that most people severely discount. And I think they can also be overplayed as well. If we want a secure relationship with Russia, well, we just overlook their aggressions in Ukraine and Syria, and then we have a better relationship with Russia, who's able to provide our allies with gas on cheap, and it's everything should be better for everyone, except that Russia feels unchecked in power. So, I mean, there are some, yes, you do need a, I guess, a positive-positive sort of way. So if I break this positive chain, I will be hurt as well as they will be hurt. But sometimes those hurts to you are less than the hurts to them. And in the long run, you accomplish something bigger and better. You could also argue on some level that by leaving the economic ties in place, we can enable uh, countries to carry out things we disagree with. So at some point, there has to be a line that that as a nation, we decide, you know what, we're not trading with these people anymore because of X, Y, or Z. Um, though, yeah, having economic ties allows you to put pressure on that nation in a way that military might does not, because no one thinks you're going to actually invade tomorrow. I guess, I mean, now no one has any clue, but no one thought Obama was going to pick up the, the red phone and, and order a strike um, for no reason or even a small reason. But he may, in fact, you know, re- rethink economic ties. He may adjust things that would hurt the economy and, and destabilize the ruling government. So maybe we should listen to him. So there's... I guess there's some back and forth there too, but all of that requires a careful hand. We don't really have that right now. Yeah, I mean, it's we definitely should still promote, generally speaking, human rights and not being a terrible dick to your people. But it's kind of the question of, isn't this how American diplomacy has always been done? That we've pretty much always said, oh, we're all about human rights. But then in actuality, we still pursue more or less a realist agenda. And so would it be any different than what we're, we've always been doing? Well, and I think it's, um, it, that's that u- the f- unique U.S. foreign policy. It's always been a blending of liberal and realist foreign policy, which isn't always completely coherent. But it's something that the U.S. is generally 
and I, I know a lot of people will disagree with me on this, but generally we've played that foreign policy pretty well. There was never any nuclear war between us and the Soviet Union. There was never... I mean, for all the really, really, really crappy coups that we did start, we also prevented a lot of deaths in other countries. And it, there's a tendency to look at the negatives of what the U.S. foreign policy has accomplished in its irrationality than what it might have accomplished in its rationality as well. It's impossible to measure the good stuff is the problem, right? You know, you can't measure wars averted uh, yeah. and you can't measure um, lives saved in that sense, but... I mean, and I've been so, I've been critical of U.S. foreign policy um, for many different reasons, but for the you could argue for the most part that it has been relatively consistent. I guess when I think of the Cold War, what I'm most struck by is just the close calls when they do happen require uh, a consistent ideology of some kind and a consistent you know mindset and 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 from the leadership, which is what's scary right now because. Whatever ideology America had before was unclear enough to the American population that this new Trump thing is not completely out of yeah, left. It is out of left field, but you see what I mean? Like, yeah. without the strong attachment of American foreign policy is for justice or for economic gain and no in between or something else, uh, instead of just this vague idea of freedom, uh, Trump can come in and upend that because, well, no one's really attached to it. No one really decides or says to themselves, I really do love what we're doing out there. We're doing really good work. It's always this kind of unsure gray area instead. And I think that's really worth emphasizing as well. For I think I might have brought this up before, but Ronald Reagan, when he came into the White House, his foreign policy was to be a little bit erratic to keep the uh, Soviets on their heels. They're not going to know what the U.S. is going to do because they're not going to make the rational decision. Rationally, they're not going to make the rational decision. So you don't know what they're going to do. And that almost led to nuclear confrontation because the Russians thought that the U.S. was going to be more aggressive than they were actually going to be because of all the bluffing. And I think that I'm really glad the Soviet Union's not allowed anymore because yeah. you, this would be the worst possible foreign policy ever with something like that. But I hope that it doesn't escalate to any sort of crisis like you were saying, Kurt, because you're completely correct. If there is a crisis... It's not going to be handled well. It is interesting, too, because the the uh, rational irrationality, the kind of, like, let's keep them guessing uh, foreign policy, it's so interesting when people get stuck in their bubbles, in, in the national security bubble. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, Bill Simmons is a sports writer for, uh, he used to write for ESPN, and he occasionally would say there should be a common sense czar on every basketball or football team who just every once in a while checks in and goes, that sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> and then and then people have to explain to the person if you can't explain to the common sense czar what you were trying to do then it's a bad idea and this like uh, you know constant irrationality thing is a really dumb idea like when you when you boil it down it's like we're basically saying we're gonna make the russians who have a lot of nuclear missiles scared we're gonna make them nervous and 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 paranoid and that paranoia could lead them to preempt us and then cause nuclear holocaust what are we talking about here you know like that was that would be a, a common sense situation and i think what's funny about trump is that his lack of ideology is one thing but he seems to in the sense of all these different dictators really respect strength and control over a population so are we in a sense creating a new american ideology of just being pro-strength unwittingly are we doing that right now I think you are, and I think I know that Kurt, you don't believe that he has a foreign policy. And the more I watch him, the more I think one is being developed in the White House. I don't know if he came in with it, but as I said before, I think it's going to come down to the spheres of influence. And spheres of influence is necessarily a power ideology. You have the power over your sphere of influence, and no one can contest you in that sphere, and therefore you are the dominant power. And he's looking at China and going, well. All that area in China, that's in China's sphere of influence. Ukraine, that's kind of in Russia's sphere of influence. Hmm. Iraq, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's in Bangladesh's sphere of influence because I'm not sure where it is. But <laughs> yeah. and I think that that's really where we're going to start ending up is spheres of influence because that means we don't have to take care of all these other countries. It is the perfect non-interventionist ideology because we don't care what happens in other spheres of influence. Yeah. You stepped on my geography joke. I was going to make a point about the sphere of influence requires that you know what's in or around the sphere <laughs> in this area. So 
China might have a sphere of influence in the Middle East because I guess they're vaguely in that area, right? No, they're somewhere else. I don't know. Hey, I, I'm trying as best as I can to preempt all the jokes here. That's, that's what we got to do as a team. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, I, I understand that. And maybe it will be that we'll see more and more the world progressing towards spheres of influence. But one could argue that some of Trump's moves have actually been sort of, in a way, trying to undermine the influence and expansion of Russia and China. And I take the the um, example of President Duterte as a possible example of this. I mean, because previously, you know, we saw that Obama pretty much hated Duterte and Duterte hated Obama. And we were definitely looking at a long period of declining U.S.-Philippine relations, which would be a problem because the Philippines would be key to helping China gain access to the South China Sea. But now, if we if we undermine that, could that not possibly undermine China's attempt to gain control of the South China Sea by being, I guess, less antagonistic towards Duterte? I think Kurt comes into this one as I don't think he has a foreign policy on that. I think he likes Duterte because Duterte seems strong and he's killing little children and he can do it without any limits on him, which Obama was unwilling to let him just kill random people randomly and work. <laughs> God, he's the king over there, so why not let him do that? And he might not, but what about his support staff? You know, what about the generals? What about Mattis? Clearly, they're at least allowing this to move forward. Well, and there's also the, I mean, the disconnect between the State Department and the presidency is, is kind of profound uh, in the sense that this is the lack of ideology thing, right? I think um, McMaster just recently had to tell South Korea that, yeah, despite what you've heard, we are going to be paying for that missile defense system. And... Because Trump had just said that they should try and pay for that. They, they should have South Korea pay for that instead. And so there's this kind of um, a damage control, right, where they're putting out fires that are created by the presidency. But at the same time, uh, there are some decisions that you can't walk back. And I think some of this, like, Duterte stuff, didn't he was didn't he threaten to, he didn't threaten to kill Obama, but he said some, like, deeply racist and offensive stuff. Uh, it says quite a bit that, you know, the, your predecessor, immediate predecessor, this guy insults him and, and threatens him. And rather than saying, oh, OK, well, you know, you've insulted and threatened America, too. The end result is, yeah, I kind of get that. <laughs> like, this guy seems great, you know. Um, but I don't know that that to me, the fact that Duterte insulted Obama seems like a more uh, likely reason that Trump likes him than anything else that Duterte's ever done. Well, and that's the, the only thing he's heard about him. No, I agree completely. And the fact that uh, you say there's a difference between the White House and the State Department. Well, there's a difference between the White House, the National Security Chiefs, the State Department, and Nikki Haley. The State Department recently just asked Nikki Haley to vet every single one of her statements with the State Department before she says it. Nikki Haley is the ambassador of the United Nations. If they're not on the same page already, there's something horribly wrong. And I think we have multiple different foreign policies coming at each other. Uh, I'm kind of excited. I'm honestly, uh, if this was a, a comedy show, the writers have gone off the rails a long time ago. But uh, oh. Nikki Haley, I'm just, I have, I'm, I'm honestly curious to see what crazy thing is going to come out of her, of her mouth. Because, um, like, UN ambassador, there's no, I guess there's no, like, you can't expect questions to be all about economics or all about, uh, a certain type of thing that you understand. There are going to be a lot of weird, random situations that she might be put in uh, around foreign policy that she is not particularly experienced in. So it's it's something that something ridiculous is going to happen, and there's going to have to be a immediate or, or quick response from the State Department or, or the White House. And nothing we have seen in Kurt makes me think this is going to happen uh, efficiently or, or or confidently. I guess my main point I'm trying to make is, you know, we fight with the the troops we have, not the troops we want, right? And in the same vein, we conduct diplomacy with the allies we have, not necessarily the ones that we want. I mean, we are still very solid friends with Saudi Arabia, even though they have the worst human rights track record of almost anyone. And oddly enough, apparently, Stephen, weren't you saying that... Yeah, I was about to say, what are you talking about? The... They were elected to the Women's Council. Yeah. Come on, they have the best human rights. The best human rights. Nobody does human rights like they do. But, um, actually, that's true. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's essentially the thought Some that... Some really dark humor, sorry. You know, we've been, we've been 
intervening in other countries for so long, isn't this also a subset of intervening if we keep on wanting to say, well, you should really maintain your democracy, even though, like in Turkey's case, apparently you don't want to. Right. That's that's the tricky thing, too, right? At what point are we, should we just say, you know what, that's not our job, <laughs> you know? And uh, that, if if Trump were a, I guess, Ross Perot type figure where he had a kind of consistency and, and some sort of ideology and the core of that ideology was let other countries govern themselves. That's not a terrible thing to say. Uh, the problem is when you couple that with let, let the countries govern themselves, America first, and also any dictator that I meet seems pretty cool. Kim Jong-un is, you got to hand it to him. He's doing pretty well. Or, you know, uh, Duterte or, or Erdogan, any, any authoritarian move is rewarded or white nationalist move like Marine Le Pen is giving a shout out. So there's not, it's not let them govern themselves. It's let them govern themselves in a way that prioritizes uh, this kind of white nationalism we've been seeing uh, across Western Europe. So we've already mentioned Turkey a few times in this podcast, but let's really dive into it now. As most of you are aware, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan recently held a referendum to consolidate his power in Turkey. The vote was supposedly close, but it was preceded and followed up with massive purges in Turkish society of anyone not considered loyal to Erdogan. Now, there is almost nothing standing in the way of Turkey becoming an authoritarian state. So how can Europe and the United States maintain a relationship with a regime whose support is tenuous at best? And what can Turkey tell us about the supposed backsliding of democracy and human rights in the world? It's, it's mostly that it happened so quickly. Um, been what I what I have pulled from this, and then it happens. Uh, you know, it was a straight up or down vote on this referendum, and I think a lot of people, when you see that fifty percent number, it's just fifty fifty coin flip. Who gets more? Who gets fifty percent plus one? Uh, that can be a little scary. And um, the, they did a second round of purges recently. When I say purges, I mean people being fired or arrested. Uh, we I'm, I'm looking at some numbers from uh, journalist uh, Mahir Zainalov who's been a journalist in Turkey for some time. I'm not sure if he's still actually in Turkey or in Washington, D.C., but um, he's been back and forth before. Uh, we're looking at shutting down one newspaper, one magazine, 14 associations, 13 health clinics, 18 foundations, over almost 500 academics, and 98 administrative and university personnel have been fired, almost 4,000 public workers, over 200 health doctors, 447 um, Air Force officers, 141 Navy officers, 470 Army officers, 44 general staff defense ministers, people were fired, 120 Coast Guard officers were fired, and it, it goes on and on. Um, and so this, just the just the massive numbers of this purge, um, logistically presents a problem because these are professionals. And if you think back to some of our earlier podcasts talking about uh, the importance of State Department officials, you know, the head of the State Department is one thing, the head of the defense ministry is one thing, but if you don't have competent staff who know what they're doing across the board, there are problems and to replace everyone who and some of these purges have often been because people own a book that the government thinks means that they are anti-government or have visited the East United States before and therefore could have been close enough to Philadelphia where Fethullah Gulen is not exiled, exiled kind of uh, by, self, by himself for now. Um, so maybe he, they're Gulenists and they're part of this huge complicated plot. When you replace all those people who's left and what ends up happening is we go from whatever meritocracy might have existed, and, and Turkey has its own problems of corruption, uh, into this kind of weird uh, kangaroo court scenario where it's nepotism, it's connections, it's loyalty to the regime, and, and it all comes back to, are you connected to the party, and does the party approve of your actions, which is just a terrifying way to run a democracy. And I think at this point, you have to assume Turkey is no longer a democratic country. That's just the judgment you have to make. Um, if you're an outside observer. Oh, so pessimistic. Come on. It worked out well for Soviet Union when they did their purchase. <laughs> okay, so they're a democratic country in that they, they name the leader uh, president or prime minister rather than supreme first citizen or something. I don't know. But <laughs> beyond that. Hey, now, not even Hitler, you know. Whoa, 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 did. Sean Spicer, calm down here. <laughs> Oops. The brakes. Um, I gotta go, you guys. I have a different podcast in a different room. I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. (laughs) So I'm kind of interested about the return of Bakshish, like you were kind of pointing out there, the return of uh, 
undue influence because you're right the vacancies so many vacancies that it will create is just going to create a huge problem with nepotism with um different sorts of any sorts of influence peddling really and it's going to create it's going to really reinforce the um, erdogan's party's position it's the aj oh gosh what is it akp and it's so it's really going to reinforce this position in the long term because it's going to be able to hand out that sort of patronage to now its supporters so it can remain a tacit democracy oh yeah we're winning all these positions and whatnot because we're selling the seats of the parliament or whatever it might be because we forced out the person in before them but when you have that kind of system i guess the question we have to ask ourselves try to put ourselves in the shoes of turkish citizens what reason would you have to participate in government or trust government in any way why would you if you've seen your neighbors get arrested at, at one in the morning uh for you know owning a book or someone saying they owned a book or someone saying they called someone and then you see all of this happening within the government structure what point do you just check out i don't know I and mean, that's, that's hard for me to wrap my head around well and that's the thing is it seems you know obviously short-sighted in the sense that yeah, you can purge everyone today, but then what are those people going to do tomorrow? I mean, I was reading, um, I can't find the book right now, but there's two chapters on the um, you know, post-invasion of Iraq, which are called How to Create an Insurgency. And they broke down, this is how you do it. You basically purge all the Baathists. In this case, you know, you purge all the supposed Gulenists or anyone who is not considered part of a, a loyal part of the regime. And then what do they do? They're unemployed. They're pissed off, so they turn around and they start this insurgency, or they start the movement against you. Well, yeah, but I mean, then you look at the Syria playbook, and that's all you have to do is play them off as extremists. They don't even need to be extremists. It doesn't, it's like when all those attacks happen. Oh, well, I bet it's the Kurds that did it. Well, it probably, a lot of them probably weren't the Kurds, or I bet ISIS did it. You flip to the most extreme rationale. So a lot of these people could be taking up arms in some sort of, I don't know, I hate to say moderate because moderate has become such a bad word in foreign policy nowadays, but some sort of moderate fighting force. And they are going to be portrayed as the next ISIS, the next uh, KPP or PKK, I'm sorry. Uh, and I, there's no way that they win because the government can frame them. Uh, they can frame the entire issue and make them into the terrorists. And I, let's be honest, I did see a uh, thing a little while ago. Turkey still has, like, the number two number of terrorists locked up in the world, and the majority of them are journalists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Journalists, academics, um, and I think the there's just this, this knowledge and fear that the government's tapping your phones. You know, everyone, at any moment you're being recorded or... or any excuse that you give is enough to just throw you in jail. And for a lot of people, in the United States, I think I hear people talk about, you know, the, um, the importance of nonviolent resistance. And and these are all honorable and, and, and powerful things to aim for. But at some point, nonviolent resistance re uh, relies upon a level of empathy and, uh, from, from the people you're resisting against. You know, so if the government doesn't think you're a human being your death won't weigh heavily on their minds. And if uh, Erdogan has so little respect for the Turkish people, there's not really any impetus to change his ways. You know, marching in the streets is just going to convince him that this is a, you know, these are paid protesters by, you know, by Soros or something. It's the same kind of thing, right? There's this mindset of, I am so sure of my correctness. I'm so sure of my party's uh, uh, beliefs that why take any any protests or, 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 or um, conversations seriously. And so, you know, when, when you say, Stephen, that these terrorists or, 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 or journalists or whomever are thrown into jails, it's like the prison system is the ultimate referendum on, on Erdogan's power. And since he hasn't had to release anyone, no one's ever made, no one's made him do that. And all the EU can say is, well, I guess we're going to rethink your membership. Yeah. He can just turn that into a campaign slogan. Those racist Europeans are telling us how to run our country. They don't know what it's like to be next door to ISIS, next door to these terrorist groups that they created and we have to now deal with every day. And boom, that's your next election, right? So 
uh, it's just it's a really sad situation. But I think as long as Turkish journalists and academics and everyone else that's innocently held in prison right now remains there, that's the ultimate bellwether of Erdogan's strength. How if he is he being forced to release people that he want, doesn't want to release, and if not, then I guess we're just going to deal with it. Yeah, and I don't think there's any possible way that. Like, I, I hate to be so pessimistic, but I don't think there's really any way in the near term or even midterm future that I guess Erdogan and his party are knocked out of power just because he has imprisoned half of his uh, detractors, the other half he's disempowered, and anyone who want, might want to become a detractor looks at the and goes, no, 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 no. Way too much negativity there. I'm just going to support the ruling party, go along with it, hope for the best, and hope that maybe I can get some positions, get some bakshish in this position. You just start to survive, right? Your your goals pivot from, uh, I guess, focusing on civil rights or, or ways to improve society and turn to how do you survive and make sure that your family and your relations and your friends are are taken care of and that might mean rethinking your morals and your ideology to to deal with this new setup yeah and i think um to an extent the united states has to do that same evaluation in its relationship with turkey my big concern though is what does this mean for the future of nato since turkey is you know one of the founding members of nato what would happen if they try to invoke Article 5 from an attack from the Kurdish state, or worse yet, an attack from an insurgent group within its own country. Then the United States is in the terrible position of having to say, okay, we either support this and essentially fight them, because, you know, an attack against one is considered an attack against all, or what, we kick them out of NATO? I mean, there's, it's it's obvious that Putin doesn't like NATO, because it is, you know, giant international alliance that is basically founded in opposition to the Soviet Union and in opposition to Russia, essentially. But it's a lot more nefarious to think that NATO could be undone by one of its own internal components, essentially breaking it down, rather than everyone thinks of the obvious, oh, you know, Putin rolling tanks into the Baltics, that would be an obvious attempt at dismantling NATO. Maybe it could come from a different internal source. Yeah, this is the old foreign policy problem of allies and friends. If your allies aren't your friends, you're not in a good position for the going on in the world. And I think we're in that position to somewhat is that we have allies who aren't friends. We have friends who might not be allies. And until we realign our priorities, and I don't know, I, Kurt, I'm, I don't know how you realign away from Turkey. They're too big a player. I know they're not as big a player as they want to be in the region. They want to be the Sunni bellwether, but I don't know how you, especially without a coherent foreign policy right now, if you have four different foreign policies coming at it, there's not going to be one solution. One question would just be, how does America project any power in that region? Not any power, but a lot of their power without Injulik Air Force Base, you know, without uh, Turkey as a staging ground. That's, that's an easy question, you know, for, for military people to, to negotiate and, and, and argue about. But I think Turkey is just such a such a linchpin in that re, in that area that it's hard for me to figure out. And it's also hard for me to figure out what Erdogan would do if he's is snubbed in that way. Right. It's kind of the ultimate uh, the no one believes in us. Everyone's against us situation. And he can turn that into whatever he wants at this point. But. It might also lead to more uprisings from or, or protests from Turkish people who are now like, "Look, your your inept rule has gotten us kicked out of one of these foundational parts of of modern civilization." Right? Um, I can't imagine frame the, it like you did the Dutch. Right? No, and I guess part of the thing is that I don't. I can't imagine that NATO can just do that right away. It would take a little more. They've overlooked so many of Turkey's human rights abuses in the past that I think I imagine that it will take a little bit more to get them uh, 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 to decide that Turkey is no longer but it's, part of the club. It's, it's more than just human rights abuses, though. This would be if Turkey decided to invoke Article 5. Because if you do that, right. then, you know, we can ignore, oh, it's just human rights abuses. But if they actually say, you know, we invoke Article 5, we have to respond in some way. 
But the but what I, I guess what I'm saying is that if you were to, I assume that they would want to ignore that Article Five invocation, but to ignore it, it would require that you kick Turkey out, right? Mm-hmm. That would have to be the, the the rationale, wouldn't it? I can't. Would what other rationale I, would you have? Yeah. My question is, and I, maybe one of you guys knows a little bit better, and I should know about this, but I don't. During the Suez Crisis, when both France and England asked for U.S. support, and the U.S. basically gave them the middle finger and said, you're not even a great power anymore, what are you doing in the Suez? Did How did we kind of handle that? Because I know we just basically gave them the middle finger, and Russia kind of went up to us and went, hey, buddy, how you doing? And <laughs> well, I think we handled it, didn't we, by just saying, you know, deal with it. You don't like us? What, you're going to go to the Russians? Of course you're not going to do that. Turkey right. can do that this time. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, another thing I think is that that was more of a self-created issue. And I mean, in this hypothetical, we just we just we just proposed Nick. It would be kind of self-created. Um, but international terrorism is enough of a global problem that I don't know. There's there's an inkling of of something there, you know, that you could you could fashion into a, a rationale if you wanted to. Um, but Europe has been spending the past 10, 15 years, and when I say Europe, that's a lot of people, but, you know, different parts of uh, European powers have been saying, well, Turkey isn't like us for different reasons. And, you know, the Dutch, uh, Dutch Geert Wilders is one person doing that, but he's far from alone. And a lot of people have been saying uh, openly and and privately that, you know, Turkey is not anywhere close to uh, what Europeans consider, consider a a truly modern uh, 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 government. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out, and it's also kind of hard to figure out what Erdogan's new grip on power will do. Does that mean that um, we completely distrust anything he says from now on because this guy's obviously, you know, just in for, for his own own control, or the fact that he's fighting against ISIS and and potentially, I mean, I don't even know what's going on with Syria anymore, but like he's this, in this linchpin scenario. Does that mean that Europe has to just play nice and deal with whatever he says? And I think the saving grace for us right now is that I don't think Erdogan particularly, he might want to be more neutral and distance himself from the United States to give himself more policy options, but I don't think he wants to close relations, or not. when I say close, I mean get closer to Russia in relations, warm up relations too much with Russia, Russia just due to a couple historical factors there and the fact that Russia's tried to invade Georgia and Turkey, or and Turkey and uh, Ukraine and Syria, and I don't think they'd feel super confident about cozying up to them. So mm-hmm. I don't think they'll enact Article Five or whatever. Try to enact Article Five because they know this entire thing would play out. That is the card that would break the deck, and I don't know if they want the deck broken. A lot of this stuff requires rational actors, and it's interesting <laughs> to see as we as we. Drift towards authoritarianism, uh, and I do think you know Erdogan and, and, and Putin, for example, are, are far more rational and consistent than their critics give them credit. I think they actually do have a very clear ideology. That ideology just happens to revolve around their own power. Uh, but you know, they, it's pretty. You can generally figure out what they're what they're largely going to do based on their past actions. Um, the problem really is all of this Article Five stuff. We're, we're not factoring in um, the Trump effect, which would be. It depends on who the opponent is. If the opponent is someone that uh, the, the uh, person that is causing Turkey to invoke Article Five is a group that Trump decides or, or believes is an enemy, or a group that would make him look good by fighting, then all bets are off. You know, it, it, it becomes a, a potential uh, international conflict just like that. So I don't, I don't know if it's ISIS, if that's the reason that. Uh, Turkey wants to do it, or, or in some way, or uh, they argue that ISIS is housed in a particular country. Then, I yeah, I don't know that we can trust Trump to to take his take his time and read all the briefing papers and understand what's going on. Well, and I suppose in that scenario, that's not the worst thing that could happen. I mean, if it was directed specifically against ISIS and it actually was ISIS and not you know him saying it's ISIS, but it's actually his supporters or something like that. It would still be problematic, but mm-hmm. it's not, oh, I declare it against this separatist movement of my own people. That becomes a problem for the United States, because then then Erdogan is dictating our yeah. policy <laughs> as a means of keeping NATO alive. Right, and obviously not, not to defend ISIS, uh, who, you know, suck uh, <laughs> for lots of different reasons. Uh, but, like, 
I, I guess the question would then be, you know, uh, how would that invasion look? Where would they be based out of? And then, you know, are, are we respecting the boundaries of nations where ISIS is, is active? That sort of thing. It would be, it would be very complicated and messy. Um, but I, again, this goes back to rational actors and consistent ideology, and there's just no proof that anyone in the Trump White House can do that. Um, and since, you know, Europe is dealing with their own kind of weird uprisings, I don't know that they have the political uh, capital to fend off a ton of um, pressure from these right-wing groups who have started to be very successful in their elections. By the way, Nick, do you want to do any of those definitions things or? or oh, key, um, some key terms. Yeah. Hey, if you got, you guys, if you got, do you guys one. talk about that at all? Or okay, I was just going to talk about populism. Go for it. Okay, I'll just yeah, I'll just jump in. Um, so we see a lot of different political groups talking about populism as as their kind of um, reason for existence, right? The they are the populist movement. They are uh, feeding what the people need. Uh, they are feeding off what people need, and and, and and responding to those demands. Um, what I think is fascinating is that populism means such very different things across the world. Um, and in the United States, populism has kind of led to this weird situation where uh, instead of dra- draining the swamp, we're doubling down on bankers running the United States government um, and, and economy. But when you look at populism in France, for example, uh, Marine Le Pen, their nationalist front, has support of a lot of young people. And you can argue, and some people have, that in a sense that is a reflection of what a, a large group of, of French people want. Um, whereas the Trump foreign policy has just been promises that are not kept, right? We're going to have outside people from the from the government experience doing this sort of thing. Just kidding. It's all Goldman Sachs bankers, right? So this whole back and forth on populism and who gets to own that term uh, is going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years, both in the United States and abroad. Um, I'm very curious about how that's just going to survive or not survive over the next five years because a truly populistic movement that really does apply to what the working people need might be very positive. But that sounds an awful lot like socialism. I don't know about you guys. Respond to the working people, and we should instead rely on bankers to keep handling it, right? Well, everything sounds like socialism if you don't know what it means, but yeah. <laughs> Tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fair. Stephen, right, well, did you for, have a key term? I, I thought one up. And Great. this one actually, uh, Fareed Zakira actually coined a little while back, but I thought was an incredibly interesting term called illiberal democracy. Because we all think of ourselves and we live in democracies. And inherently, if you even talk to a couple of the professors here at SDSU, all democracies are inherently liberal democracies, meaning they're inclusive, meaning that uh, minority rights are respected etc., etc. And Fareed Zakira kind of coined on this idea of an illiberal democracy, which would, I think, which I think of uh, with Russia and now with Turkey. And that is a democracy which is a democracy. It is somewhere where you vote, and for all those democratic norms, they are met. But the liberalized portion of it is not met. So you don't have the, and I believe it was Rousseau, but I could be horribly mistaken on that, where you have majority rule with the respect for minority rights. And that in both of those countries, you have majority rule, which is a democracy, but you do not have respect for minority rights, which makes it in a liberal democracy and a democracy which needs to be kind of called out because we look at these countries and we call them authoritarian, we call them dictatorships. They're really not. They are still democracy. Putin, for all of what he does, is elected by the people every single time. It's, you could say anything about voter intimidation, but he is very popular. And it doesn't make Russia any less of a democracy in that sense. And I think that there is a kind of a missing nuance when talking about those countries, because it's not Singapore. And it's not China. And it's not Taiwan. Well, yeah, Taiwan could be in a liberal democracy as well, but it's not any of those countries. It is a democracy. It's just not one as we think of it ourselves. And that's something where we also kind of impress upon our ideas of democracy on other countries. 
for instance, when we think of impressing democracy on Iraq or when we're impressing democracy on all these other countries, they're not going to think of it as a liberal democracy like what we want. And it has a very strong implication on how the United States, obviously we're talking about the collapse of the liberal order, so maybe this doesn't matter anymore, but the when we are trying to push these countries to become more democ- democratic, when we tried to push Venezuela to become a, a different type of democratic than what it was, are, what type of democracy are we pushing them towards? Are we pushing them towards a liberal democracy, which won't might not be in the best interest of us, or in a liberal democracy, which might be in the best interest of us, etc., etc.? Democracies are not always good things, and you need to distinguish between what an illiberal and a liberal democracy is. Yeah, and then also, yeah, the the cultural institutions and norms that exist around the world are not always welcoming to those different groups, right? Or welcoming to those different certainly, yeah, uh, democratic norms that they try to import. So all those things can come to come into play, and maybe the end result is not so positive. I talked about that a little bit in the um, the why. Turkey voted away its own rights article because essentially, you know, yeah, not everyone thinks democracy is the greatest thing in the world. I mean, they look at, you know, 20 years of congressional obstructionism and see, uh, yeah, maybe there's some merit to just having one guy call all the shots. Yep. Take it or leave it, right? And if you coming from a region where authoritarianism, you know, it's always, it's not always good or not always bad, but generally it's pretty bad. Uh, but if you're coming from a region where democracies tend to fail pretty spectacularly, it's not hard to go from that to well this dictator is not so bad so let's just roll with it yeah yeah all right anyone have anything else i'm waiting for your uh, term no. nick yeah oh Here's i did your homework i don't have a term uh. <laughs> hey you guys it's been a couple of episodes so i didn't prepare one this yeah time. no it's fair it's been hard to get everyone uh, together and that's it for this episode of the orientalist express podcast I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Kurt, for their insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of our blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com. You know, like and share on our Facebook group or tweet us at orientalistexp. And our podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all your other favorite podcast sites. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.